Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and this week's show is brought to you by Run Zero. And that means this week's sponsor guest is HD Moore and he will be joining us after this week's news segment to talk about how Run Zero can now automatically assign owners to assets. And yeah, this is handy, as you can imagine, because you can figure out who owns what, who's supposed to be maintaining what, I guess. And uh, perhaps more importantly, you can figure out which assets are not owned or managed by anyone. And uh, we'll also talk to him about that hideous Outlook bug because HD thinks there could be more bugs like that one lurking in Microsoft's software. So yeah, that is also interesting. Do stick around for that. But yeah, it is time for this week's news segment now. And this week I'm joined by both CyberCX's Adam Boileau and also our very own Tom Uren because we're going to talk about a couple of things that Tom knows a lot about. And Adam, Tom, uh, the first thing we're going to talk about uh, today is this executive order that has been signed in by uh, US President Joe Biden. The order basically says that if you are a spyware company that has helped people infringe on human rights and done dirty, dirty things, um, you will be forbidden from being able to sell spyware to the US government. Adam, what did you make of this? That seems quite sensible to me. We've seen, you know, a lot of talk about the misuse of spyware, both in a, you know, kind of, you know, the expensive spyware, like the good stuff, and also in the context of, um, you know, stalkerware and spouseware and those kinds of things. So, like anything that tightens up both sides of the spyware market, that seems like a really good idea to me. Now, this has been people's reaction uh, to, to this news, basically, which is, you know, it, it seems like a good thing. And while I agree with that, I do kind of feel like they're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Because when you look at the spyware companies that have been behaving badly, they're not the ones who tend to get US federal contracts, right? So, uh, Tom, you know, you're here. This is an area of expertise for, for you. You know, wh what do you think here? Do you kind of agree with me that this is perhaps the solution to a problem that doesn't really exist, but it's still good? I do agree. I wouldn't frame it quite as drastically as you do in the, I think it's good to spell it out in a policy that everyone can read because, you know, the, uh, the FBI and probably other organizations flirted with NSO and, and eventually decided not to go with it. And I think there's the possibility at some point in the future, they, they would think, well, oh, this is okay, you know, without doing due diligence. So I think it, it cuts off something that could happen in the future. I think that there's a lot of concern about nationalities and whether you're in the sort of five eyes tent or out of the five eyes tent. And I think that's been the limiting factor probably in the past. And I think those companies have tried and they haven't gotten past that barrier in the past. And this makes it clear that yes, there is a barrier. You're never going to get past it unless you're really, really squeaky clean. But I guess my point is, even if they're perfectly squeaky clean, I can't imagine too many US agencies actually buying the stuff. <laughs> I think that's probably true as well. But I think overall it's good. It left me wondering about what to do with the rest of the whole ecosystem, right? There's a whole lot of bad stuff done by all sorts of actors. This tries to directly take a narrow slice, the commercial spyware industry, and do something about it. It probably doesn't achieve much, but it makes me wonder, you know, should we, should the US government be trying to look at the whole ecosystem more broadly and do more well, things? Well, 
this is what I was getting at when I said I don't think it went hard enough. I mean, you know, an EO that could have directed Treasury to look at uh, imposing sanctions on any spyware company that's been found to be enabling human rights abuses, I would think would be something that would move the needle a little more than this. I also think it's really funny they dropped this EO when Israel's in the middle of a political crisis. So there's going to be absolutely no pushback from the from the foreign ministry of Israel, right? Like that can't be a coincidence. But, you know, I, I just thought they could have gone a bit harder here. That's all. I think there's a lot to do with Europe as well, in the sense that many of the companies have moved from Israel to different parts of the EU. Maybe not many, but there's like yeah, some Cyprus examples. Cyprus seems to be. Yeah, a, Cyprus seems Conan, to be. The, yeah. And so I think, you know, it's at least something they can point to when talking with EU governments. We've done something here. You know, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That makes sense that it's a template for other governments uh, to follow. Now, look, one of the big reasons you're here, Tom, is uh, we're about to talk about uh, about TikTok. And I'm going to apologize in advance to all of the <laughs> listeners for talking about TikTok. Because it's a topic that I feel is being done to death and also done to death badly, which funnily enough is is the reason that we decided to talk about it today. Now, I want to start with you, Adam, because the discourse in InfoSec around the TikTok hearings and people weighing TikTok bans and stuff, it seems to be pretty low quality, uh, if, if I'm going to be honest. And I think I think people are missing some, point, missing, missing some bigger points here, which we'll get to in a moment. But why don't you tell us what you've observed in terms of the discussion around, around TikTok as a, as a threat and, and, and what the discourse seems to be like? I think we as an infosec industry struggle with with things that haven't happened. So I mean, a lot of what the bigger picture about TikTok is things that could happen or that the level of influence the TikTok gives the Chinese Communist Party, you know, that is the, the grunt smoking guns that we can point to other than a few pretty isolated sort of cases. So there's quite a bit of that. There's also a lot of whataboutism, you know, what about Facebook, what about Google, which doesn't take into account the core aspect of this conversation, which is the Chinese Communist Party, <laughs> uh, rather than the technical capabilities of social networking to collect data, to have access to your address books and contacts and build social graphs. And people say, well, you know, Cambridge Analytica, yes, like that is an example of social network graph data being used perhaps in a way that we didn't expect, etc. But it's very focused on, you know, show me a smoking gun technically or things that don't take into account the geopolitical reality of the ownership or the the origin of of TikTok. Now, just one thing real quick on the Cambridge Analyticas of this world. If their stuff was that effective, they would be selling us AWS instances and not trying to mess around with elections, okay? Because there's a lot more money in selling toothpaste and, uh, you know, data center space than there is in, um, or, you know, virtual service space than there is in, in, in politics, for God's sakes. But yeah, look, I've seen a lot of talk about, well, oh, you know, as if there are, you know, security risk and whatever, and the data risk is overblown. I actually agree with that. I think there there is a bit of an issue around the social graph stuff. Off, but that horse has bolted. And I think you can mitigate a lot of the, the you know, hard security risks. People who are in security critical positions maybe don't use TikTok, right? Whatever. That doesn't mean you need to ban it. But, okay, and here's the thing. And this is the thing that I feel like InfoSec is, is kind of missing in a way is, you know, we got to look at this from a media ownership perspective, okay? This is a foreign media company where the CCP does have a pretty direct ability to grip the moderation lever, okay? <laughs> and, and we're talking about a company here that has 150 million users in the United States. And I've seen statistics of like, you know, 50 to 80 million, I think, daily active users on TikTok just in the United States. Now, to put that in perspective, Fox News gets 1.4 million 
daily viewers in the United States, right? So TikTok is massively, massively influential. It's smaller than YouTube, but not by much, right? So so let's reframe the debate for a second because I think, you know, the, the congressional hearings that happened the other day, let's not beat around the bush. They smelled a little racist, you know, like there, there was just that that vibe. And I think a lot of people in InfoSec have been pushing back because there were elements of the questioning that were just a little bit gross, right? Like it just didn't feel, they didn't pass the vibe check as the kids, as the kids say, right? Um, that said, I think the CEO of TikTok did a pretty poor performance as well because he turned up and basically spoke about how enmeshed TikTok was in the daily lives of hundreds of millions of, uh, hundreds of, millions of Americans, which I don't think, um, you know, set people's minds at ease. But look, in order to, to reframe this, do you think it would be cool if Google decided to split off YouTube and sell it to ByteDance? Now, anyone who says, you know, oh, this whole thing is about nothing, as soon as you put that to them, so you'd be cool with Google splitting off YouTube and selling it off to ByteDance. They all say, F no, are you crazy? And, and I think we need to sort of get back to this position, which is this is about media ownership. You know, if a Chinese company wanted to enter the United States market, buy a huge regional newspaper chain, you know, CNN, NY Times, uh, Fox News, you know, this would never pass, uh, uh, you know, a regulatory check. Right. And I think this is the problem is TikTok has grown into this massive media company that is just so powerful in the United States. And that's where the freak out is. And it's fair enough. And, and Tom, what, what do you think about all this? I found a lot of the debate in the infosec sphere, like just super frustrating because it entirely misses that whole point. Um, and I think you're in an interesting space in that you are in infosec, but also in the media. And I think there's very few of your audience who are in that space. Um, and I think, I think that description of it having grown to be a huge problem is exactly right. And I, I guess once upon a time, I had the same view, particularly when it came to Huawei, for example, it'd just be so stupid for Huawei to do something that would compromise critical infrastructure. And then over time, I gradually realized it's not that they want to, it's that they've got no choice. And so some of the things that have been really kind of changed my mind about all of that is the way you see Chinese executives just grovelingly apologize to the Communist Party or um, leave the country, get exiled, or they just disappear. And you've got no, no idea why. And it's hard to know whether that's for a legitimate reason, because they were corrupt or because they just stepped over the line. And so one example, particularly relevant to TikTok is the former CEO issued a, a, like an amazingly groveling apology. And can you just imagine if say Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk issued a groveling apology to say Joe Biden? Oh, look, you know, I haven't for upheld- fa For failing to live up to the values and ideals of the wonderful institution that is the Democratic Party. Exactly. And yeah. I'll never do it again. And yeah. this is what happens in the PRC. And then the other document that really kind of changed my mind is that there's this document called Document 9, which is about problems in the ideological sphere. And it says, you know, Western yeah, now this Universal... this is a leaked Communist Party uh, document, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, 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 that's right. A leaked Communist Party document. You know, the problems are Western universal values, things like human rights, Western constitutional democracy, 
the West's idea of journalism. This is a problem because it challenges the China principle that the media and publishing system should be subject to party discipline. So yeah. you've got this kind of straight line between we think what Western media does is bad and wrong. We can really strongly coerce the executives at these companies. Two, you've got a massive, potentially very influential app in TikTok. And so the you've got the capability, you've got the intent. And so I think that adds up to a, a, a huge risk. Yeah. And I mean, and, you, you got me, by the way, with this because... I was kind of skeptical as well, right? And the way that you got me and got me thinking about this differently is you said, okay, Pat, imagine that the next US presidential election comes along. Some American says something really critical of Donald Trump. It goes epically viral on TikTok. Trump loses the election and then he turns around and says that it was Chinese interference because they boosted this critical material on TikTok. And that made me realize, well, there's another way in which uh, Chinese ownership of TikTok is just sort of politically untenable. Yeah. Right. Continued Chinese ownership of, of, of TikTok is just sort of untenable. So, you know, the question becomes, what next? And it's got to be a forced divestment. It's got to be forced sale. Like, that's where that's where I've landed. And it's it's it's. I know I've changed my position on this, but, you know, I've thought about it now. <laughs> yeah, so that nightmare scenario, um, I think, is not unlikely at all. Like, I think mm. they're... I, I'm, I actually doubt that TikTok has been pushing the levers to advance the Communist Party all that much, maybe just a yeah. little bit. I think it's built into their DNA. They've, they, they tend to suppress things that they know the Communist Party doesn't like. I don't think they've done it in a huge way, but I think it's absolutely certain that some American will have legitimate opinions about the election. It'll go viral. The mainstream media will be primed to pick up on that and just cast doubt. You know, is this legit or is this Communist Party interference? And though, well, so just, just sorry, on the topic of doubt, you know, I was, I'm, a TikTok, I'm a TikTok user. I love TikTok. I think TikTok is absolutely terrific. And I really hope that they divest it and, you know, put it into to different ownership so I can continue using it. I <laughs> yep. love it. Okay. So, so this, you know, I really do not want TikTok to go away. But I was flicking through the other night and there was a news report that came up. It was, a, it was someone had posted a BBC news report about a young soldier who'd been killed in action uh, fighting in Ukraine. It was a British, former British soldier who'd, who'd decided to volunteer in Ukraine. So I watched part one of this report and any listeners who use TikTok would know that when you want to get to part two, you like click on the user and then you, 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 know, you try to find part two. I click on the user, user does not exist. <laughs> now... Why was this user's account nuked? Was it because they were posting BBC copyright and it was flagged as a copyright violation? Well, maybe. Is it because it was talking about stuff that the CCP doesn't want to talk about? I mean, Xi Jinping was in Russia the other day, palling yep. around with his good, good friend Vladimir Putin. Was it that? And I mean, you've got no way of knowing. Now, if it was a copyright claim, are they going to vigorously enforce the copyright claims that line up with their ideals and be a little bit slack with the other ones? You know, even something as subtle as the way you prioritize copyright takedown requests can be politically influential. Yeah, I think TikTok has proposed a plan where they get Oracle to audit their algorithm. I think it's Oh, Oracle. Well, I feel so much better. <laughs> exactly, right? And I think... But hang on, hang on. Of... This is about auditing the algorithm, but there's manual curation in TikTok, right? Yeah, like, I, it's not I think... all algorithmic. I think that example is a really good example of one where it would be hard to prove that nothing's happened. Yes. Right. And I think there would it would be really very easy for a journalist to come up with a whole heap of those examples. And it's really impossible to rebut from TikTok's point of view. And so I think it will be uh, a running media issue. 
Uh, mm. Just a nightmare to deal with, and I don't see that it's sustainable. No, no. Adam, wh- where, where did you land on all of this? Because we've all been kicking this around the last week or so. Where did you land? Uh, I mean, I also would like divestment. I'm also a TikTok user uh, and it is deeply entertaining. Uh, and I would be sad to have to RM it from my phone. Um, so in that, in that sense, I have the same, you know, the same horse in the race as you. Um, but yeah, I think reframing this as media ownership is totally the right analysis. And um, yeah, it's just not... But like that example of, you know, you just can't prove it didn't happen, but the vibes are there, right? And you're never yes. going to know, and it's always going to be a problem and hanging over them. So, yeah, I think, you know, I certainly don't feel like just putting it in an Oracle data center and then pretending that somehow Americanizes it. <laughs> it makes it, you know, kind of, you know, um, launders it to be no longer Chinese communist. But, like, clearly that's ridiculous. And that was, uh, you know, that never seemed like an option. But actually selling it off to someone... And then hosting it in the US or at least within political control of the West seems like the only viable way forward. And yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it would have been helpful if the US Congress could have run these hearings without seeming like a bunch of tub-thumping racists. You know what <laughs> well, I mean? Like that would yeah, have been, that would have certainly helped people feel a little bit more comfortable with taking a critical view of TikTok because I think there's this reflexive thing when you see them being such d- that you're just like, yes. oh, these guys, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm on TikTok side. And I, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, and also the way that they yeah. were talking about it as a data security risk and whatnot, like while ignoring the, the massive issue that this thing is like, yeah, I mean, no way would anyone think that selling Instagram to a, you know, to a Chinese company would be a good idea. You know, and imagine, imagine if TikTok were an American company right now, say it was in American hands and they wanted to sell it off to ByteDance. No way is that happening. Yeah. You know, and it, it, no it, one would yeah. support it. So it's just it's just like once you start thinking about it in these terms, you can see why the the ownership thing is a real issue. Yeah. And also I mean, this TikTok thing, because of its size and popularity, has been really helpful in bringing to the fore this idea of you know political ownership of of entities. Uh, and you know, we've seen, you know, some European governments start to go, look, we're just gonna have no foreign you know no uh, apps run by countries that we are in a bad relationship with on government operated devices like beyond just tiktok right i mean you couldn't mm. have you know north korean tiktok either uh, and that's a great and like that's a thing that we needed to get to because we didn't think about this stuff and you look at you know selling port infrastructure and power companies and other critical infrastructure off to investors you know that come out of out of china or wherever else right we didn't really think about those things 10 years ago either and like this whole conversation has kind of pushed forward the need for us to think about the well, and that's why there's the res- the restrict act is is looking yes. like it's going to get yeah. up in the United States. But I think we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of uh, Chinese Australians who use WeChat, and they should be able to do that. Uh, they should be informed of the risks of doing that, and told that every single message they send is going through um, <laughs> servers that can can read uh, their messages, and you know they're they're probably being surveilled. Um, but I think there is a freedom of choice thing here. I think the problem with TikTok is scale. You know, yes, yeah, uh, fundamentally, it's, it's just scale. It's 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 a massive, massive media company. I mean, can you uh, imagine if like Alipay or WePay or whatever were the dominant payment systems in the United States? Like, would yeah, that be a tenable no, situation? No, right? Not Probably not. And I mean, there's even cross-media ownership rules in the United States that prohibit Americans from owning too much media. You know what I mean? Like, this yes. is a regulated space for a reason. I think there is a little bit to the case of like, well, what about Elon Musk filling up the for you feed on Twitter with a bunch of like screaming <laughs> hysterical fascists, right? <laughs> I mean that that's an I issue wish as well. I, wish but, I wasn't laughing. But Ugh. you can't do anything about that. You can do something about this. And you know, the whims of a weird uh billionaire versus the 
you know, the strategy of, an, of, a, of a state, of a country that the United States describes in its own policy documents as an adversary. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that 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 is a different kettle of fish, and the what about what about isn't doesn't quite apply. Um, yeah, you know, and we agree. did see people like Zuckerberg hold in front of Congress to explain themselves. Uh, difficult to do that when you're dealing with a foreign entity. But look, let's wrap up that discussion there. If people want to hear more about this, Tom does a weekly uh, podcast with the Gruck in our other RSS feed, which is the Risky Business News RSS feed. They did a half hour discussion on this topic that was very very interesting. I'd recommend if you enjoyed this conversation, go listen to that conversation. <laughs> uh, Tom, thanks for joining us uh, to, to share your insight with us. And uh, I'll look forward to reading your newsletter later this week. Great, Pat. See you later. See you, Adam. See you, Tom. Now, Adam, let's move on to some more bread and butter InfoSec news here. And uh, look, you know, I feel it's a little bit deja vu. Um, Klopp has apparently rinsed just like 130 organizations because of this go anywhere MFT bug that we've uh, been talking about over the last few weeks. Apparently this happened a couple of months ago and now they're doing the data extortion phase of this attack. This is exactly what they did uh, with the vulnerability in the in, in, in similar software, the Excellion uh, file transfer appliance. And, you know, this is just going to be another Excellion sized disaster. Yeah, ab absolutely it is. And, uh, you know, the number of organizations being compromised is significant, and they're quite big ones. I mean, these, if you're using this kind of, you know, enterprise-style file transfer instead of just, you know, Dropbox or whatever, uh, you tend to be big organizations handling big sensitive data, and, you know, a bug like this, you know, if you've got it as an actor like Klopp, and they had such a great experience with the Excel, and it makes sense to go rinse everybody at once because people are going to start patching, you know, once you hit one or two, you may as well just do everybody at once. And I think that approach is a, like if you're an enterprise software manufacturer that makes these kinds of things, uh, you know, anything that's on the perimeter of the network, that's a reasonable target, like understanding that your world has changed and that, you know, crime groups understand how the response goes, they understand how it's going to play out, and they're going to hit you once fast everywhere simultaneously. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's 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 what's happened here. Good news, yes. everyone, right? Good and, uh, I mean, it's being reported as a mass ransomware attack by TechCrunch, but as best I can tell, it's just data extortion. It's not actually ransomware. Yeah, I mean, um, the data's taken. That's what they did with the Excelion uh, yeah, breach yeah. as well. Took it, ransomed, uh, you know, the contents of the data, dropped some of it, you know, took ransoms for others. And they did pretty well out of the FDA, Excelion FDA, you know, situation. Um, I also think... Um, Fortra, who owns uh, Go Anywhere, uh, runs some kind of hosted cloud service version of it. And it if was you're in a position where, right? well, that's the thing. Like, typically, if you've got some kind of multi-tenanted solution that you're running in, in the cloud as a service, typically it shares a bunch of the code with the on-premise or appliance version. And attackers understand that, right? And one of the advantages of being a software as a service vendor is you get to keep all of the how the sausage is made secret. So you don't get reverse engineered, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're using the same software in an appliance or, you know, an end user device and a cloud service, that gives attackers such a great advantage to be able to go and find the kinds of bugs that are hard in software as a service solutions and exploit them in the cloud one and get you know, maximum ROI on your, on your bug and your research. So once again, like tough place to be if you're one of these vendors. Yeah, and I mean, just looking through a list of people who we know were affected, we've got the uh, you know UK Pension Protection Fund, we've got Crown Resorts, which is a massive Australian company, um, you know, runs casinos and resorts. Uh, we've got some, you know, TechCrunch has been doing a lot of reporting on this, and they've um, 
you know, got a story up about how Fortress said everything was fine, you know, <laughs> told customers everything was cool when it, when it wasn't. The city of Toronto, um, Virgin as well, the Virgin Company, um, the government of Tasmania, like, yeah, so many, uh, so many victims. Funny thing is, I, I was doing some research on this uh, this week and I found Fortra's marketing page or one of their marketing pages for Go Anywhere MFT, which compared Fortra, you know, Fortra's solution, Go Anywhere, to Dropbox, right? And talking about how if you care about security, you want to use Go Anywhere MFT, right? And and all about how the cloud <laughs> is insecure and this and that. You've got to control your stuff. And, you know, the, the disturbing thing is the arguments looked convincing, but knowing what we know now about Excellian, about the IBM one whose name we always forget, <laughs> and, uh, and and this one as well, you know, it's, it's clearly these file transfer appliances are a giant screaming liability for the average enterprise. So the question becomes... You know what do you what do you do instead? You know how should organisations seek to move large files around? I mean, can you even when I've tried to move really large stuff around with G Drive? You know, I'm dealing with failed uploads, and you know it's just it's just kind of a drag. Like how how should an enterprise move large files around these days, Adam? Well, I mean, it's, it's a great question because I mean, the, the, a lot of the value in these kinds of solutions tends to be strong integration so that you can glue it in for automated document management, for automated processing. So like you know, some business partner will upload you a CSV file that then gets automatically ingested and processed you know, to, to make transactions or whatever else it is. And that kind of glue has been one of the reasons that, that you end up buying this on-prem instead of a consumer solution like Dropbox. Now, there are cloud vendors that... Well, you know, Dropbox are, are does going, have an enterprise tier, but anyway. Yeah, so like, but I mean, they started out as a consumer-focused kind of thing, right? And this sort of enterprise integration and centralized authentication and all of that kind of enterprise glue, like there are now cloud SaaS vendors that do that kind of thing. Dropbox One, Box.com, there's a bunch of them. Um, so you can now do these things in the cloud, but these are also solutions that get put in once and then forgotten about um, and you know uh, Fortra the company that owns Go Anywhere MFT right they purchased that set of products from its original vendor Fortra owns uh, Cobalt Strike for example right I mean they're they are collecting a bunch of you know interesting bits of security so, so they're software. doing the best to get everyone owned in as many ways as possible I guess well the... you know I mean I don't want to you know I, I yeah I have no particular they're having a bad uh, enough week you don't want to rub it in I get it I don't want to rub it in but I'm not, it reminds me of organizations like Computer Associates or yeah. you know Broadcom now post acquisition of VMware things that buy up embedded tech that's going to last forever in enterprises and then you milk them for a long time while spending very little on maintenance like mm. that's the kind of vibe yeah yeah, that yeah. I so, so look I've, I've got a question here right for the listeners which is given we've seen this a couple of times now uh specifically involving clop and file transfer appliances what's the advice to listeners on what they should be doing this should they start locking these things down if their appliances you know restricting ip ranges and whatnot which i know is going to reduce the utility of them i get that but, you know, there's such a liability at this point, you've got to ask yourself whether you need to take some measures here. Yes, like if you have some product that isn't one of the ones that's already been wrecked uh, on the perimeter of your network, then, yeah, I would consider doing your own QA uh, because, you know, the vendors historically have shown they don't invest enough in quality assurance. Handling but that's not, files that's is not actionable difficult. advice for the average small enterprise. Right? No, like for they a small can't, enterprise, they can't go and not. commission someone like you to go and rip it to bits. You yes. know, so what's what's the advice? I mean, you know, I would think some IP restrictions on these things to minimize the number of places that it's reachable from would be the the, the simplest thing you could do. 
I mean, it's certainly better than nothing. I mean, IP restrictions are good, or you know, if possible, if there's existing VPN infrastructure, you could use that. You know, a WAF in front of these, because they're typically web-based, right? Yeah. You can WAF them, get some defense in depth. But to be honest, putting a WAF in front of a Excelion Kiteworks or uh, in front of GoFDMFT, once again, isn't you know going to require a bunch of expertise and time. And like the saving grace is that these solutions are targeting generally big enterprises rather mm. than small orgs. Small orgs are probably already using G Drive or something cloud based anyway. But uh, you know, doing quality assurance of these kinds of things is really difficult and unfortunately expensive. But it's still way less than getting breached. But is it time to get them? You know, time to rip it out? Or honestly, yes, probably yeah. it is. Like if you've got one that does something like this and especially if it's a five, 10 year, 20 year old product like uh, FTA, Excelion FTA was at the time. Get rid of you it. Know, you, you've got to take it seriously, unfortunately, yeah. because Klopp are getting return on investment here and they are going to do this again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've seen a major data breach in Australia, Latitude Finance uh, or Latitude Financial. They're in all sorts of trouble here. It looks like they initially disclosed, uh, you know, it was a couple of weeks ago, they initially said, oh, we've lost data on something like 300,000 people. But, you know, it turns out they handle finance for a lot of our large retail stores, uh, you know, the type of stores that will sell you a television, um, you know, and the big chains, right? So every time people were doing finance applications through those stores, it was passing through Latitude. It looks like a lot of that data has walked. And we're talking 14 million people. And, you know, Australia is a country of like, like 25, 26 million. So it's a lot. It's basically yeah, everyone. Yeah, they published a statement uh, to the Stock Exchange in Australia talking about the kind of the breakdown of uh, some of the data. So they had, you know, I think 8 million people's worth of like driver's license data from the last, you know, five or six years uh, and then a bunch of other older data. And obviously it also impacts New Zealand. They're a player in the same retail chains mm. uh, here in New Zealand. So, uh, you know, there's all sorts of credit check and information um, that they've said was... Uh, was taken we don't know that we know any more than that about how it happened etc cetera, etc cetera. but um, certainly in, in terms of scale of breaches you know Australia and New Zealand has seen a bunch of big ones lately uh, yeah and this one's certainly up there in size yeah and it'll be cu- I'm curious what the government's response to this is going to be you know because we did see a big government response to the Optus and the Medibank um, hacks of course and you know the coverage on this one's been a little bit more muted right so which I find curious because it's it's you know it's important data I mean a saving grace here is that Australian states most of them anyway have moved to a system for authenticating identity that relies on an, on another number on driver's licenses which is called the card number so the the actual driver's license numbers on their own are not all that useful so hopefully there's a bit of a saving grace there but yeah i did want to mention that while we're on the topic of um you know data going bye-bye um got a great story here from dan gooden uh over at ours it's a pretty complete write-up i first read about this in our own newsletter uh by catalan kimpanu but um there's this like chinese e-commerce app that has been now booted out of the uh android store because it was apparently packed full of oday that would, uh, you know, let it get really get its hooks into a device once it was installed. And the thinking is that it was trying to like, they were trying to like boost their metrics on on number of active users and stuff. And they were doing this with with Oday. So it basically like once it gets on a device, you can never, ever, ever get rid of it. But pretty interesting seeing that Oday being used this way. Yeah, it's a really interesting write-up and it's become more complicated as we understand more about it. So this was a set of privilege, privilege escalation bugs on Android that would let you escape the app sandbox and then, you know, kind of root the device. Uh, and we had seen this used in, or Google had seen this used in the wild, uh, written it up, only patched in the last few weeks. So as Android ecosystem goes, that's like O'Day for quite some time still. Uh, and then these apps 
uh, weren't coming out of the Google Play Store, but that's because you can't use the Play Store in China. So they were coming out of the various manufacturers and various vendors, you know, kind of sideload app stores that they use in China. And these apps are, you know, signed by the right keys. Like, you know, we don't uh, we don't know exactly how. Uh, the you know this kind of set of malware and behavior got in there. Uh, there's been at least some researchers popped up and said like that it was doing things to competitor apps and collecting information and so on like and positioning it as a perhaps this was legitimately a competitive, you know, kind of situation with some of the the other apps in that uh, you know that they compete with. Uh, so that's like we I don't know that we've really seen that done. It's certainly not like officially, but hey, you know, Volkswagen can cheat on diesel tests, then anything's possible, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't know whether this is a, you know, malicious, like done by an outsider supply chain, whether this is just some engineers inside trying to meet the targets that were set for them, or whether it's like, you know, actual company strategy. Yeah. Company strategy. Either way, it's really interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of does. I, I, it's just super fun seeing bugs used for something more than just stealing, you know, mining cryptocurrency on people's phones or whatever else. So, yeah, good, good, uh, yeah, interesting. Just, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's fun stuff. Uh, now we're going to head into our ransomware wrap and, uh, you know, quite a few interesting targets this week. Uh, Lumen, the telco, uh, has apparently been responding to two breaches. One of them was a ransomware incident. City of Tennessee uh, got rinsed. Uh, Puerto Rico's Water Authority as well. Uh, a British hospital managed to contain a ransomware attack, apparently. And uh, the largest telecom in Guam has begun restoring services uh, after a, a pretty nasty attack. Um, most of the reporting that we have on ransomware incidents comes from the record. They they have a habit of like just writing stories about a lot of these. But, um, you know, there's a lot of ransomware out there still, I guess, yes, is the point. Is. Um, Dish, we spoke about Dish, the satellite TV provider, having some sort of incident weeks ago. Uh, now they're still struggling to get everything back up and running, apparently. And people ringing support are being given like a 14-hour wait time. You know, please hold. Your wait time <laughs> is 847 minutes. So it seems like <laughs> things are not going so well there. But look, moving moving into some other news, this one's really fun. Uh, this one comes to us via the record as well. It's a story by Alexander Martin. And um, the National Crime Agency in the UK has fessed up to running fake DDoS for hire websites in order basically just to capture the information of people who contact it and want to like, you know, buy DDoS for hire, right? Which is, um, you know, lol. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like probably a relatively low cost and quite effective, you know, low false positive sort of way of doing... Um of, of catching people who want to use those services, but also it just kind it, of This sows. is like when a normal when a normal person wants to hire a hitman, like 99% of the time it turns out to be like an undercover FBI agent. Yes. Right? Like <laughs> yes. This is the same thing. Exactly. Right. And that, you know, that has a deterrent effect because you can't trust who you're dealing with, etc. So like, yeah, this is just a smart, smart play and good on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Oh, and we got more information now. Like last week, I kind of speculated that maybe the uh, FBI didn't have really solid evidence on the breached forums admin. And, you know, they, they, they sort of tricked him into confessing when they put the cuffs on. But boy, looks like I was wrong, Adam, because... Um, <laughs> You know, the OPSEC failures here definitely fall into the, the hilarious category. Um, they, they yeah, they, they got do. him good. They got him yeah. good. I mean, the reporting did say he did confess when he put the hang when they put the handcuffs on. So, like, yeah. not entirely wrong, but they're not not because of lack of evidence. 
Um, yeah. yeah, the OPSEC uh, failures are exactly the sort of thing you would imagine, you know, if Krebs was going to Krebs you, this is how, how you would get Krebs, like ties between different email addresses that you've used ages ago, ties between old forum accounts uh, being then subsequently reused, you know, IP addresses. Like he was using Tor and VPNs and stuff, but he was using them in a way that still let them kind of link up who he was and what he was doing based on behavior, like being logged into raid forums or logged into another forum and logged into a breach at the same time from the same IP address. It was like logging into Gmail, for example, from yeah, the my same favorite, Yeah, my favorite one, though, was where he was complaining to someone that there was a data set that was supposed to be complete um, and it was in Have I Been Pwned, which had the complete data set. But he had this data set and his email address wasn't in there and it was Connor Fitzpatrick 2002. So 2002 <laughs> being his birth year, Connor Fitzpatrick being his name. Yes. So he's like, why is the email Connor Fitzpatrick 2002 at gmail.com not in there? <laughs> now, the FBI got a hold of this conversation and apparently they got his recovery email address, which is funmc59tm at gmail.com was the recovery which address. Was his that dad. Yeah, and that one was like, you know, used to register all sorts of different services and whatever. So they had it, they had him good and they also had him under physical surveillance. So they're like sitting outside his house. And look, I've spoken to uh, federal investigators here who've said that's a really good bit of evidence when you can sit outside the house and see them through the window, like typing at their computer when they're logged on to adminning these forums and stuff and you kind of keep a journal there and it's very easy to prove that they are, you know, that 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 person. But yeah, no, they, they got him... They got him good. Yeah. I mean, the, the kid's 20 years old, so... Born in 2002, as it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. So, like, I guess the degree of OPSEC that you need to have to run a major, you know, data breach forum or crime forum or whatever else is probably beyond what you're going to be able to do as a as a 20-year-old kid, right? It's, yeah. I mean, so far, though, he's only been charged with one count of conspiracy to commit access device fraud, which is subject to a maximum of five years in prison if he's convicted. So... So far, he's not being jammed up like, you know, DPR style where he's going to do yes. life. Um, but let's see if they, they, they charge him with more. That'll yeah, be and if they uncover, you know, like hitmen for hire things like they did with DPR, then, you know, fair enough. But, um, yeah, it's, I don't know, the US justice system is, is a strange and weird beast. We'll see how this, uh, how this plays out. But, yeah, like, just goes to show, like, you need to have better OPSEC than that if you're going to do public, you know, high-profile stuff like he was doing it's not uh, you yeah know, you can't you can't just yolo that stuff i'm afraid kids yeah and of course this arrest came just a few days after breached forums had the the dc health link data in it which contained the personal information of a bunch of u.s politicians which is uh, how you get ants, yes yeah cyber scoop tracked down the guy who did this breach and uh you know they're talking about how uh, you know, they did it for the glory of Russia, right? Which I don't think is going to improve Connor Fitzpatrick's uh, sentencing hearing, <laughs> to be so honest. Much. Not so much, yes. For the glory of Mother Russia, we will hack the imperialist. Yeah, nice work from, from AJ Vicens over at CyberScoop on that one. Uh, we've got a bit of North Korea news to get through now. Uh, the North Korean APT group, Kim Saki, has been targeting people in a new spear phishing campaign. Germans and South Korean government agencies have issued a warning on that. That one's from James Reddick at the, uh, at the uh, record there. Uh, but there's a more interesting story from Greenberg, actually, over at Wired, which is looking at a new cryptocurrency laundering strategy that the North Koreans are using, which is actually pretty cool where they go to like a mining pool and they buy into a mining pool with the stolen currency and then get the mined fresh, you know, clean uh, cryptocurrency based on their input into the mining pool. But, you know, I don't know how sustainable that's going to be as a laundering model because of the nature of blockchains. Yeah, I mean, it seems relatively inefficient 
I, I mean, I can't imagine that it's a one-for-one kind of situation that you're going to be losing a whole bunch, but that's better than having it seized from every other place you're trying to launder it through. Um, that kind of laundering, though, I mean, I know when, when Bitcoin first started becoming a thing, like the idea that you could use an anonymous Russian mining pool where like essentially you're only interacting on the blockchain um, to like do mining yourself and then also be able to buy into other people's mining pools. Like that seemed to me the cleanest way to obtain, you know, good quality, clean Bitcoin. That's what we used to do. Like when, when we needed to test things that used Bitcoin for payment, we had a bunch of Bitcoin that I mined through anonymous Russian mining pools because, you know, I, you just never know when you're going to need clean coin, right? Um, <laughs> and it seemed the, the smart thing, the smart thing to do, but you know, it's just it wildly inefficient. But like the fact, I mean, I guess the fact that we're seeing them do this suggests that the pressure on means that the treasury actions against the against the tumblers are working, right? Like exactly, that's exactly yes. what I was going to say. Yeah. 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 So that that seems good and interesting, but um, but then we're going to see treasury action against the mining pools, right? Well, like that's, yeah, right. You and know, that's what I was getting yeah. at. Yeah, so like if you're in that kind of mining game, now is the time to start preparing yourself for the arrival of you know, your customer and you know treasury and all of the you know sanctions and and whatever else. And maybe it's time to think about uh, you know when you should exit scam. You can't offer laundering services just because you're calling them something else. Yes, I think exactly. Ain't no one, ain't no one, no judge <laughs> is going to be you know amused by your you know nomenclature. Yeah. Now there was another one that uh, Catalan picked up, which is that uh, Cyber Command actually sent a hunt forward mission to Albania when Albania was suffering under those catastrophic um, wiper and crypto attacks that Iran launched against it. We spoke about them last year. So yeah, apparently Cybercom uh, put some put some people on a plane and sent them over there to to respond. I mean. I think this is win-win, right? Because you get yeah, the expertise, yeah. and, and and of course, they're very careful in the in the statement they put out about this, saying that they could work on systems that the Albanian government wanted them to. Um, so, just sending some expertise there, you know, the Albanian government got the expertise, and the you know the Americans got the IOCs, right? It feels like a win-win. Yeah, and also training. I mean, it's uh, mm. you know one of the hard things for Cybercom is getting enough you know experience, enough hands-on training for all of the people that it has, and this is just another great way to do it. So it's you know win all round uh, on on everybody's front. I think. Yeah, and uh, Kaspersky dropped an interesting report uh, that people can have a look at. We've linked through to it in this week's show notes, uh, looking at a uh, malware campaign targeting entities in the occupied areas of Ukraine. So possibly, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing possibly the Ukrainians are doing a little bit of their own uh, malware campaign targeting some of these areas, or is this Russian? Or I mean, I don't even know. Yeah, who, who even knows anymore? But yeah. I mean, targeting uh, you know institutions in Donetsk and so on and Crimea and so on, like that seems like the sort of thing that if it's not them, it certainly aligns with their you know with their needs and intent. I mean, this is kind of what I was thinking. And you would think if it was a Russian campaign, maybe Kaspersky wouldn't be reporting on it. Well, well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Of course, you know there are plenty of other people freelancing and and you know kind of just helping out Ukraine in general. Uh, so it could be somebody else. But yeah, I mean, it felt like. Some of the tooling looked reasonable and the OPSEC looked reasonable. So, you know, kind of kind of felt like Ukraine giving yeah. them a taste of their own medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Adam, we're going to end on a sad note uh, this week. Um, just before you and I recorded last week's show, I think you and I both woke up to the news that uh, Aloria Kelly Lum uh, had, uh, had passed away. Uh, I think, um, you know, we were at the moment at that time, just trying to get out, trying to get the show out the door. So we didn't, um, uh, we didn't discuss it last week, but yeah, Kelly Lum was, was well liked by a lot of our friends. I, I, I can't remember if I'd met Kelly, but I'd definitely spoken to her. Uh, we'd, we'd DM'd before on, on, on,
on Twitter and whatnot. She'd been around InfoSec for a very long time, uh, seemed like a awesome person and uh as i say a lot of our friends uh just just loved it a bit and it's um it's very very sad yeah it certainly is i remember her infosec reactions uh twitter yeah, meme her channels too, right? Info, being, the infosec reactions uh twitter account was her yeah that was a such a source of good lulls and yeah i, I think i'm in the same boat I, i've never had never met her but yeah plenty of mutual acquaintances uh, of both of us um were friends with her so yeah it's always sad to see people going uh, before their time in such a small and and relatively tight industry yeah, just just a real bummer, you know, real bummer. One of those names who's been around, you know, forever. And yes, uh, I think, yeah. you know, a couple of times we'd, we'd you know, uh, been in Twitter threads together and then, you know, sidebarred in the old DMs um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. always found a, a, a very pleasant um, and, and very smart woman as well. Like she did a lot of good work, but um, yeah, she would definitely be missed. But Adam, that is actually it for this week's news. And uh, we're actually off where the weekly show is taking a break for a couple of weeks. So I'll be chatting to you again in three weeks. Yes, and I'm sure lots will happen between now and then, and uh, I will look forward to it. See you later, Pat. <laughs> it always does when we take a break. <laughs> that was CyberCX's Adam Boileau and Tom Uren there. Big thanks to them for that. And, of course, you can read Tom's newsletter, Seriously Risky Business, every Thursday. Head to risky.biz slash subscribe to find links to all our Substack newsletters and all of our podcasts. And uh, yeah, I mean Thursday Australia time because, uh, of course, Americans will get it on their Wednesday evening because, you know, the dateline, man. We live in Tomorrowland. Uh, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with HD Moore, co-founder of Run Zero, the asset inventory company. Now, everyone already knows you can use Run Zero to build a picture of what's on your network and in your cloud environments very, very quickly and easily but they're still rolling out other useful features. And the latest feature uh, is a new capability that can assign owners to assets. And perhaps more importantly, it can identify assets that don't have owners. So here's HD Moore in an interview I recorded at 8 a.m. from a hotel room in Canberra last week while mildly hungover and before I'd had coffee. So if you're wondering why my voice sounds different, that's why. Here he is. You think that, you know, knowing who's responsible for a given laptop or workstation would be pretty obvious, but especially in the cloud, it's really hard to tell which developer, or which team was responsible for creating this asset, uh, maintaining it. Um, and then what do you do when that machine, um, you know, is cost too much money, you have to shut it down, or there's a security event coming from that machine and you need to investigate it. Uh, so that's a lot of what we've been trying to do with their integrations with uh, Google Workspace, as well as with uh, Azure AD uh, and integrations into MDMs and EDRs to figure out who the last interactive user of each machine was. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, how do you even begin to try to divine that stuff? I mean, is it just a matter of like crawling through logs and API calls and, you know, and, and I imagine that you would have taken wrong turns too, that w when you were trying to actually develop this and wound up, you know, generating lists of people who weren't the system owners, right? Like, so how, how do you actually start to do this and then how do you refine it? It's really interesting. Um, if you look at the type of data you get back from these different endpoints, uh, it's really surprising which ones are valuable, which ones aren't. Uh, one thing that a lot of folks don't realize about Google Workspace, for example, is every time somebody installs the Google Drive client, they're effectively installing an agent that reports back all kinds of stuff about the machine back to Google, and it's stored in the back end of Google Workspace, which, you know, a lot of folks didn't realize they're effectively getting an MDM, a kind of a light MDM agent as a result. Well, I didn't know that. I like... use a Google Drive. I use a Google <laughs> Drive agent. So, uh, yeah, I did not know that. It's super useful. So you can get things like the serial number of the machine. You get the interactive user who's logged into that machine. You can coordinate that back to their egress IP, which IP address they're coming from. Are they coming from your office network? Are they coming from a home network environment? 
Um, it's, it's amazing how much stuff you can do with some of these kind of lesser known API endpoints. Azure AD is also quite a lot of fun in terms of being able to like, uh, say which machine goes with what, uh, one of the kind of dark spots in a lot of networks is folks will bring a new machine online, add it to the directory, add it to Azure AD, uh, and then it kind of goes missing and no one has an idea where it is anymore. They don't see it on home networks. It's not part of their endpoints, um, endpoint management, like your CrowdStrike or something one, uh, they're not seeing it on scan. So the question is, where is it? Right. And fortunately, the directory services, your Google Workspace and your Azure AD and your on-prem AD actually do provide you a little more information on that. You can often find those missing assets by kind of following the breadcrumbs from the AD side and from the Google Workspace side back to whatever network or um, you know off-network environment the machine is on. Yeah, and systems need to have owners, right? Like that's that's one of the reasons that you've done this is because I think the goal really was to be able to be able to ask Run Zero, can you show me which systems in my environment? Uh, don't have owners because chances are if they don't have owners and if they don't have anyone responsible for them, no one's going to be looking after them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest questions we have from our users as they started adding their uh, various cloud providers, their different endpoints, different APIs to run Zero's backend, they started saying, okay, great, but who do I talk to about the machine? You know, this thing looks like it's on fire. It looks like it's been abandoned for four years. It's not running our latest OS version, but whose machine is that? Um, and the last thing you want to do is make someone go through a spreadsheet of, you know, hundreds of thousands of assets and try to figure out a username for each one of them. So what we're trying to do is automatically populate those usernames based on our last observed interactive user, or you can set roles based on uh, sites and scopes and searches. So you can say anything in this subnet, uh, the default IT admin will be this person who sits there. Uh, whereas everything in this cloud environment, we know that's uh, owned by this other team. So the default owner will be this other team instead. And then from there, you can start working through things like overlaying your vulnerability scans, overlaying your network scans, uh, looking at uh, misconfigurations. You can see which machines are running old BIOS versions coming from your endpoint data. Uh, you can figure out which machines are sorry, which users uh, don't have MFA enabled on their accounts. Uh, and you can set all those things up as you know searches and alerts too. So it's pretty easy to say, not only here's the problem I'm looking for, but let's now keep track of it over time and let me know if it um, you know veers off of our norm. Yeah, I mean, you can even set that up as a same alert, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got basic uh, webhook and email alerts both with the product as well as kind of, you know, built uh, kind of product specific alerts, but you can also drive that uh, through your SAM or you can drive that through any kind of, you know, webhook event to, to get it back out like Slack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. Slack Slack is the thing that will sync Splunk, right? <laughs> uh, in <laughs> the end, like it. it's just going to be all of these scripts like talking to Slack. Because um, yeah, I guess I was going to uh, ask what you do when you actually find something that doesn't have an owner. And I guess then it's about working through that hierarchy, right? Which is like, where is it? And who do systems that belong here, you know, that, that pop up here normally belong to, right? I mean, that seems to be how you're doing it. Yep. Right. And, and, and how, do they, how are these things getting abandoned in the first place? So like, they set up by someone who then like leaves or it's just not provisioned properly in the first case. It's a mix of stuff. Um, for some of our customers, it's cases uh, where things usually fall through the cracks is during the repair process, uh, especially during COVID and the kind of p pandemic response uh, timeframe. A lot of folks were um, mailing laptops back and forth constantly. Some of them just sat on a shelf for three years or you know, two years now. Uh, other folks were uh, sending them back in for repairs after, you know, spilling a coffee or a glass of water on them. And then when they got reprovisioned back out, the ownership wasn't tracked correctly. So it's just a lot of kind of flux, especially on the kind of IT repair side. Uh, that's really where a lot of like the, the net boss assets ended up being. Um, also, when folks started working from home, they went to the office, grabbed some gear, brought it back. And a lot of times that, <laughs> that equipment didn't make it back to the office. Now, you did mention something just very briefly there, which is that you're actually able to track asset ownership into like virtual machines and things like that in, in, in cloud environments. I, I mean, that's a completely different thing right to what we were just talking about which is actually tracking a lot of this you know a lot of these physical machines like 
Is there a lot more nuance when you're trying to actually figure out who the owner of some cloud asset is when it's, you know, virtual? It's definitely tricky. You don't get a lot of um, uh, tells you can use for it. Um, there are some really neat things you can use that are not your standard, um, you know, cloud inventory search capabilities. For example, we'll pull in the SSH key associated with every um, uh, AWS instance in EC2. And if you know a particular developer goes to that key, you can create a search query for it to automatically say, anytime I see this pub key on any machine, automatically assign that to this user, and then I know which user owns that key. Um, but the great thing about Run0 is the ability to kind of pivot between data sets. So you can say, find me all my EC2 owners without an owner, open up one of those, look at the details, okay, which pub key, which SSH key is assigned to that asset, which account ID is it in, and then pivot off that, and then you have a list of everything else that has a similar configuration or similar authentication. Uh, and that allows you to say, okay, these are all owned by this team in, you know, in India or this team that's doing marketing. Um, and then you can I mean, build it, up it, it kind of sounds like it kind of sounds like the sort of clustering that like CTI people do, right? But actually, for your own people and your own assets, yep. and it's great. I mean, we track uh, on the dashboard now. We'll tell you what percent of your assets don't have any kind of assigned owner. So you can say, I absolutely need. Yeah, I want to get to one hundred percent. I want to make sure I can get there over time. Uh, we store the history of what percent you have over time, and so we, you create a really great security monitoring program. We can say our goal is we're currently fifty percent tracking. We want to get to eighty percent by the end of the month. How well did we do? Where's the gaps? Uh, as new assets are being added to the network, are we keeping track of them correctly? Um, so it's been really effective for folks to get ahead of their security risk. And when things do hit the fan, they know who to you know, contact. Uh, one of my friends like to joke that the best way to find an owner for an asset is to turn it off to see who complains. And this is the next best yeah. thing of that. <laughs> now, uh, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about is how you're extending uh, Run Zero not just into cloud platforms, but you're also doing a little bit, you're dabbling at the moment with um, SaaS, right? When I say SaaS, I'm, I'm kind of talking just the big, you know, Google Workspace, O365, stuff like that. Um, it's interesting because what you've done is you've built the ability to query, you know, to run queries about your SaaS environments in Run Zero. I mean, these are queries you can do directly with the SaaS platforms themselves. But one example that you gave me recently is you could just ask Run Zero, can you show me all my Google users who aren't using MFA, right? Now you can do that with Google Workspace if you can navigate through their interface, which for anyone who's fortunate enough to have not been a Google Workspace admin, I can promise you it's pretty horrible back there. Um, and I'm sure you can, you know, navigate the interface and like generate a report and, and, and do it some way, but you're trying to, you know, get functions like that just into the platform, right? So that you've just got that comprehensive view. You don't need to log into 20 different systems to answer those 20 questions. You can just do it in one place. I mean, is that is that why you're sort of, um, you know, building features like that into the product? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just a question of, can I, you know, uh, can I make that data useful? It's more of can you then associate the data with something else? So it's not you know just which machines or which user accounts don't have MFA. It's like okay now what machines are which machines does that user have access to? Which ones are they the interactive user on? Uh, so you get a little bit more context about it. It's not just okay I hired a new employee they haven't enabled MFA yet. It's more of you know these these folks never had MFA. Their machines have been around for a year and a half now. Something something went wrong here or someone turned MFA off again. Um, one thing that's really interesting about the kind of SaaS model that you spoke to is that the cloud providers are now pushing their cloud APIs into their SaaS platforms. So if you look at the way that Google Workspace is set up now, you almost need a GCP license and a GCP engineer just to integrate with G Suite or Google Workspace now because of how they're pulling their APIs back in. If you want to do any heavy lifting on things like your backend security events, you have to be do, you have to do it all in GCP now unless you're using a tool like Run0. Uh, same thing applies to Azure. We're seeing a lot of folks that are building up Azure AD, but if you really want to get your hands dirty with it, you then have to build all your tooling on top of Azure Cloud to talk to Azure AD to get that data back out. So we feel mm -hmm. like um, the vendors in these spaces are doing a, a great job of exposing that data to their cloud 
in, uh, ecosystem, but not, not necessarily through the primary Google workspace or Azure AD interfaces. Now, look, um, before we go, I do want to ask you about this. This isn't Run Zero related, but, you know, you were a Vuln researcher for a long time, you know, and you did a lot of Windows hacking and there's this Outlook bug at the moment. And I just wanted to get your opinions. See, he's laughing already. You can't see it, but he's laughing already. <laughs> I wanted to get your opinions on it because, man, we, we spoke about this, uh, you know, in, in, in last week's show. It's an extremely funny bug and very, very Microsoft, which is to allow someone to put a UNC path in a calendar invite so that it plays a special boing uh, or whatever. But like, did it surprise you that there's some of this stuff still around? That That's the question. I was mostly surprised that the tax surface is still um, it, where it is. So effectively, this vulnerability uh, allows you to create uh, mappy properties, uh, kind of an internal format used by um, uh, Outlook, but also really deeply tied to like the column infrastructure in terms of like you've got property IDs, things like that. And it's exposed through these TNF files, which a lot of folks see as windmill.data attachments. Um, and apparently Outlook automatically parses these things, pulls out all the mappy attributes, um, and will actually trigger this UNC path open. So just a great example of like, it doesn't matter, um, you know, you can call Inter Explorer dead all you want. You can talk about Exchange being dead, but all those vulnerabilities are still there. They're just like one layer deeper at this point. Um, you can still yeah. hit the Internet Explorer engine by adding HTML to a Word document, just the same way you can still hit uh, mappy property vulnerabilities now by hitting Outlook clients that are parsing TNF files. So do you think that there's going to be more, <laughs> there's going to be more bugs in this, around that sort of area? I wouldn't be surprised if there's already like 10 more in the queue at MSRC uh, waiting for yeah. a patch at this point. Um, I, I can tell you, it was like when I worked on this stuff, probably almost like 15 years ago for some of this stuff, we basically fuzzed a bunch of comp controls, found a bunch of really gnarly bugs with the way that uh, Olayet properties are being parsed. And then later on, we realized, hey, all those same properties, we just found bugs in that we can trigger through, you know, Word and Office documents. We can also trigger them through Outlook messages because they have all the same uh, property values. And then we realized Microsoft was never going to batch them. So it took them about four and a half years from the time we reported a uh, it was like a standard, we could basically embed an RTF object into a mappy property, which then loaded a comp control, uh, which then triggered code execution. Um, and it took them so long to patch it because it was just endemic to the entire system. There's no easy way to say, well, let's just not do that anymore. Um, it's effectively ActiveX still kind of plumbed all the way through the Microsoft ecosystem. And even though a lot of the external attack service has been removed now with Inter Explorer and so on, you can still get to it um, through these different paths. So there's a distinct possibility it's going to be a clown show uh, for the next few months. I would not be surprised if you see RTF parsing vulnerabilities, common embedding, all that stuff being triggered through uh, these uh, uh, mapping properties still. Um, hopefully they did a, a really close look at these after this recent round of vulnerabilities, but I'm guessing there's going to be a handful more. Yeah, yeah. All right, HD Moore, thank you so much for joining us uh, in this week's sponsor interview. Pleasure to chat to you, my friend. It's always great to see you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Matt. That was HD Moore there with a chat about Run Zero's latest features and a bit of speculation on some future Outlook bugs we could be seeing coming down the old pipeline there. Big thanks to HD for that and big thanks to Run Zero for being this week's show sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business Podcast. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.